0: Hello, happy Friday, and welcome to episode number 287 of Smart Podcast Trashy Books. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books. With me today is Lorraine Heath. I was really excited to record this interview. We talk about uh, her career, writing 70 books over 25 years in writing romance. We talk about her titles in historical romance, contemporary, and paranormal YA. Uh, How Publishing Has Changed Just a Little Over the Years, and of course, we'd talk about her newest book, Beyond Scandal and Desire. We also discuss writing as a craft and process, so if you're into writing or want to know more about the the behind-the-scenes of creating romance novels, this interview should really make you very happy. Ms. Heath shares her advice for writers just starting out, and also what advice she would give her writer self back when she first started out. We talk about her British and Texan heritage, how she reconciled two very different cultures in her writing, uh, her use of intricate plot lines and familiar tropes in new settings, what she loves about historical romance, which of her covers are her favorites, and also some of her personal auto buy authors. I thought this was a really lovely and very thoughtful conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. The parts about writing advice really spoke to me, even though I don't write romance fiction as a rule. I found this very inspiring, and I hope you do too. This episode is brought to you by Never Dare a Wicked Earl by Renee Ann Miller. RWA Goldenheart finalist and debut author Renee Ann Miller spins a ravishing tale of Regency London filled with the infamous lords and unrepentant rogues whose bad behavior makes for good gossip. But these sexy scoundrels have stories and secrets that no one knows, and it takes a special touch to reveal the true hearts behind their devilish disguises. Never Dare a Wicked Earl pits a reckless Earl convalescing from a gunshot wound from a jealous ex-mistress against his determined plucky nurse with one scandalous wager. Never Dare a Wicked Earl by Renee Ann Miller is available everywhere books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. And thank you to Kensington for sponsoring the podcast this month. Each episode gets a transcript. Each transcript is hand done by Garlic Knitter. Thank you, Garlic Knitter. This week's transcript is being brought to you by Elizabeth Bright's Lady Gone Wicked. Nicholas Eastwood is finally about to get everything he ever wanted. As a reward for his service to the crown, he's been offered the title of Marquess, all he has to do is stay scandal-free until the papers are signed. There's just one problem. His ex-lover, presumed dead, is remarkably alive. Adelaide Bursnell is determined to right her wrongs. She will be a dutiful daughter and a loving sister, and most importantly, she will marry before her scandal catches up to her. Nicholas was once her ruin, but now he is determined to be her salvation. If he can find her a suitable husband, their shared past can stay buried but old temptations prove impossible to resist and scandals can never stay secret for long. Lady Gone Wicked is available at all online book retailers and you can learn more at elizabethbrightauthor.com. I have compliments. It is so much fun to do these. I love them so much. Okay. To Jane B. Your creative talent seems limitless and you are as entertaining as bubble wrap in a ball pit. And to Anna S., when you are determined to do something, people around you know to stand back and keep watching for impending excellence. Now, if you're wondering what's that about and you'd like to find out, have a look at patreon.com slash smart bitches. The Patreon community helps keep the podcast going, helps me commission transcripts for older episodes, many of which are going up right now. And the Patreon rewards are at several levels. For as little as $1 a month, you make a massive difference in the podcast. And at certain levels, there are handcrafted heartfelt compliments, which are really fun. So if you would have a look, I would very much appreciate it. And I would like to thank some of the Patreon folks personally. So to Jenny and Rebecca, Roxanne, Elizabeth, another Elizabeth, and Kelly, thank you for being part of the podcast Patreon community. Are there other ways you can support the show? Of course there are. I bet you know what they are, too right? Because if you listen to podcasts, you've probably heard someone say this. You can leave a review. You can tell a friend. You can subscribe. You can listen because that alone is pretty incredible. Thank you for hanging out with me each week and thank you for being part of the show. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. I will have information at the end of the show as to who this is and where you can buy it. And at the end of the show, I will also have news about what's coming up on Smart Bitches this week and the terrible, horrible end of the show dad joke which I have been informed many of you enjoy I will also have links to some of the articles we discuss and all of the books that are mentioned in this episode and you can find that in the show notes at smartbitchestrashybooks.com slash podcast but now without any additional delay on with the podcast I hope you enjoy this interview
1: Uh, I'm Lorraine Heath, and I write historical romance for Avon Books. Now, you also write contemporary
0: and paranormal and YA. Is that right?
1: I write, uh, I've, I've had two contemporary novels out, but it's been several years. Um, I write contemporary and paranormal for young adult.
0: That's quite an achievement. And I've, I did some research. I had to do the math. Like, I do the math. You've written over 70 books. That's an astonishing achievement. Do you sort of look back on the number of books that you've written and just think, whoa? Um,
1: I do. It's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every now and then uh, you'd think you would always remember how many books you've written. And every now and then I do have to look back and uh, count them up to see. And it is, I do get surprised.
0: I um, I had to recount on Wikipedia tapping the screen with my fingers because I kept losing my place because there are so many. That's, that's it. First of all, that's incredible. Congratulations. Do you have the experience that's common to some writers that I've spoken to where they start a new book and they think, all right, I know I've done this before. How do I do this?
1: Yes, yes. I, <laughs> I, every time I start a book, I wonder how I ever wrote a book. If, if that, you know, it's 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 just kind of um, even, even after all the books that I've written every time I start a new book it just seems to be a challenge and I think this is the book where I'm going to realize I really don't know anything about writing I'm really not a writer and, and then, but then when you get to the end it's um, it's just always a surprise and it, it seems like it was easier than it was but It's always a challenge to write a book. It is always a challenge.
0: Now, I know that you have a new book out, Beyond Scandal and Desire. And I know that this is the worst question to ask a writer. But would you please tell me about this book?
1: Um, Okay, this is uh, the first book in the Sins for All Seasons series. And um, my hero is the illegitimate son of a duke. He knows who his father is. And his father won't recognize him. And so he decides that he's going to get revenge by ruining the, um, Duke's legitimate heir. And the Duke has a ward, um, Lady Aslan Hastings, and he decides to make his revenge complete. He's going to ruin her as well. And so that's what he sets out to do. And, um, Along the way, he discovers that uh, maybe ruining her isn't what he really wants to do. As usual,
0: hero plans never work out as planned. If a reader is new to you or new to this series, it's the first book in a series, so it's a perfect place to start. What does the heroine um, think of all this?
1: The, the heroine has been very uh, protected. Um, her parents mm-hmm. died when she was young and... Uh, the the Duke and Duchess who raise her. The the Duchess is is very, uh, she she, um, seems to be a very frightened woman. She doesn't go out. She stays in the house. And so she's raised Aslan to to fear what happens beyond the residence kind of a thing. And so Aslan has had a very protected uh, life. And she's at a point in her life where she's looking to rebel. She she wants to know she wants more from life than just staying at home and doing her needlepoint. And when she meets Mick, Mick True Love is the hero. Uh, she's fascinated by him because he's big and he's bold. He's a very successful businessman. And uh, as their paths cross, he challenges her to to reach beyond what she knows uh, to do some daring things. And so she's um, she finds herself growing whenever she's around him, becoming more of herself and, and growing into herself. And so she finds herself more intrigued with him than with the man that she is supposed to marry. And
0: it sounds from what you're saying, like she's also learning from him to do what is best for her and not care so much what other people might think.
1: She is. Um, she's also, she's learning that she's been raised with certain expectations and she behaves based upon what people expect of her and that what she needs to do is do what is right for her and, and break beyond what's expected of her.
0: I think that's a pretty universal concept for a lot of young women and women, actually I think at, at any age to break past doing what you know you are expected to do and what you're being told to do. That seems like it would resonate with a lot of readers. Do you agree?
1: I hope so. Um, I'm, I'm always fascinated by how how sometimes we act based upon what is expected of us. and Absolutely. You know, and sometimes that's not what's best for us. So I hope it will resonate with readers.
0: Now, I also know that you have been published for 25 years with Avon specifically yes yes that is really incredible and it's it's really interesting how absolutely nothing has changed at all in publishing isn't it
1: oh it is it is absolutely
0: (laughs) if you could go back to your writer self 20 25 years ago what would you tell her
1: oh I would tell her to um to be open to uh, all the challenges that are presented to her. There's a couple of times in my career where uh, I had an opportunity and I didn't think that I was up to the task. And so I decided not to take that opportunity. And uh, now I feel like I would tell her, take every opportunity that comes your way uh, because you never know where something is going to lead. Um, and, and the opportunities that I turned down was I had a, like I had an opportunity to um, be part of an anthology early in my career, and I just I didn't think I would be able to work in the time to write the novella, and mm-hmm. so um, so I I uh, turned down the uh, offer to to write to be part included in that anthology. And in hindsight, you know, it, it would it was a good opportunity to to get my stories into the hands of other readers, the readers who, you know, read anthologies and uh, discover other authors that way. So, so there's just a few things like that that came along that uh, I would just encourage myself to, to take every opportunity and to find a way to make it work.
0: And it also sounds as if um, similar to the heroine in beyond scandal and desire that you would advise to take risks and try new things and try different things. Exactly,
1: and and sometimes you know it, it's scary, and, and you want to stay in your comfort zone. But I, I think it is a good thing to move beyond your comfort zone. And uh, I think I would do that. A, I would advise my younger self to do that a little bit more.
0: If you were, if your writer self right now went back to talk to your writer self twenty five years ago, would your would yourself twenty five years ago believe you if you explained what was going to happen? here's how many books you're going to publish and here are how many books you're going to write. And this is what's going to happen. Do you think you would have believed it? Um, I, th- I
1: think I probably,
0: I, I probably
1: would have because I like to dream big.
0: That's a very good skill in a writer.
1: Yes. I know. Um, my, my husband is an accountant. And when I first started writing, he would, um, he, he, he's very much a realist and, and he would tell me, you know, the uh, odds of getting published aren't in your favor. A lot of people want to get published, and I just—I was never discouraged. And and he wasn't trying to discourage me. He was just trying to save me from disappointment. I—I mm-hmm. I always felt like you know, if, if the odds may be against me, but that doesn't mean that I don't try. And so yes. I just—I um, just always. Been a believer that if there's something you want to do, you, you apply yourself to it and you do the best that you can. And hopefully, you'll achieve whatever it is that you're hoping to achieve. But a lot of it is just the journey and, and making that happen.
0: What advice would you have for a writer who's starting right now? Well, that's a hard one. Um, it is a hard one because ch- publishing will be different like tomorrow or in a couple of
1: hours. Right. It will. Be. And, um, you know, I, I always advise writers to write what you enjoy reading and to write your first draft the way that you think it would be written. I know a lot of times people have advice on what you should do with your book and how you might want to try and make it marketable. But I, I feel like the first draft should really be the way that you feel like the book should be told and then if an editor has suggestions for how it you know can be revised to make it better or to make it more marketable you know that's a different thing completely but i don't think we should start out trying to guess what an editor is looking for that we should just write it the way that we think it should be written and i would also encourage the new writers to take things that are told to them with a grain of salt because everyone has different experiences in publishing. I was actually uh, gave a workshop to my chapter on Saturday and um, uh, I was ta- uh, the workshop was on uh, publishing and, and different aspects of uh, traditional publishing and some of the people in the room would share their experiences and it was it was interesting to see that we all have different experiences in publishing, and which is one of the challenges in trying to uh, help someone navigate the, the world of publishing, uh, just because everyone's experiences are different. And so you just need to take everything you're told with a grain of salt. So it
0: sounds as if everyone is going to have a different experience and everyone will have a different lesson that they learn from the experience of publishing.
1: Exactly. And, uh, that was one of the things I really emphasized on Saturday that what I was sharing was what I had experienced in publishing. And, uh, like I said, uh, some of the things that, that people were sharing surprised me. Um, and so, um, I'm always, even though I've been in the industry now for 25 years, I still learn things every, every year, every time I get together with writers at conferences and things, I always learn things that, I didn't know or things that I've not experienced that they have. And so things aren't always constantly changing, but, uh, in addition, it's just, there's just so many various aspects to publishing that I don't know if we can ever
0: know everything about it. And there's never just one path to publishing. There's never just one way that it happens
1: now. There's many different ways. Exactly, and um, yeah, from from the beginning, you know, it's not a ladder, No, it's more of a serpentine path, and everyone's path is different, you're going to have highs and lows, Um, I mean, some authors reinvent themselves, authors change genres, authors try different things, and so it's, we just always have to be open to um, opportunities and to what, to, to what comes before us we need to try and stay informed. I think that's a good thing about going to conferences and meeting with other authors and, and talking. I learned a lot more over a glass of wine than, uh, attending a lot of workshops. So isn't that the truth? Yes. Writing is such an isolated, um, thing that, you know, when you're sitting at your computer, you're alone, you're writing. And so I think it's a good thing to, to try and stay in touch with people and to, you know, not isolate yourself too much so that you can be aware of different changes in the industry. And a a glass of wine revealed
0: many, many, many things. Oh, it does. (laughs)
1: Especially that second and third glass.
0: Oh, absolutely. The second and third glass is when all the truth comes out. So I read in your bio that you are both Texan and British through your parents. And those are two very different cultures which I can imagine is a, is a challenge to reconcile sometimes. Is that the case? Is that something that you noticed growing up?
1: Um, I did notice it growing up. Um, my mom was very, uh, my mom was British and my dad was Texan. And uh, my mom was very much about tradition, about um, maintaining a sense of tradition of uh, tradition. <laughs> A lot of the things that we did at, at Christmas was based on things that she'd done um, in England. You know, like doing the crackers—those little things that you pop apart—and she would always make her her British dishes. Her, um, oh, everything is escaping my mind right now. But anyway, she would make her mincemeat pies and uh, her trifle, and in Christmas at Christmas particularly, there we had a lot of uh, British traditions. And the and my mom would often talk about um, the challenges that she had when she came to the States uh, trying to fit in. She would tell us one story where she went to um, a 5 and 10 store uh, and she was asking them where she would find the rubbers. And so they took her back to the pharmacy <laughs> to the condom section and what she was really looking for was erasers. And so she was just really embarrassed by that. And so she, oh no, yes. And so she she tried very much to fit in as a Texan. Mm-hmm. She um, tried to lose her accent, and she she wanted to just fit in. Um, and it was interesting because several years later, her sister immigrated uh, to Texas, and her sister was very determined to keep her accent. She she really wanted people to know, you know, I'm British. So Mm -hmm. it would be interesting. Uh, But my mother's accent always came out whenever she got mad. (laughs) And that was how we would know when she really sounded British. That was how we knew we'd done something wrong. Um, (laughs) And my my dad would would talk, um, didn't talk quite as much about his life as my mom did, but he he grew up uh, picking cotton and I remember one time we were on a trip and we passed a cotton field and he pulled off to the side and went and plucked a bowl of cotton and made us all feel how it um, scratched your palm and how hard the seeds were in there. And he said, you know, I would do that for hours, just picking, picking until your, your hands would bleed. And And so it was just, it was very different. They had different lives and they would just, they would share those Uh aspects of their life with us. So I grew up very much aware of um, a difference in hardscrabble life in Texas and growing up um, in a small uh, town outside of London. And uh, my mom grew up during the war, so she was always uh, sharing with us different uh, war stories. Uh, she grew up in Watford, which had a a munitions factory, so they were bombed a lot. Ooh, yeah. So, um, so we grew up with a lot of stories about World War II. Very much aware of the impact war has on the civilians. I just have always been interested in the two different aspects of my uh, heritage, and of course, in school we would you know study Texas and Texas history. Um, And so when I went to college, I I started taking British history classes just to kind of round out my education.
0: One thing that that struck me while doing um, some research for this interview is that British culture is very introverted. And American culture, and especially Texas culture, is very extroverted. So you almost have two oppositional instincts in the same household to be very expressive and to be very introverted and, and um, less outwardly expressive. Is that, was that the case with your parents as well? Were they, were they products of that culture?
1: Uh, They, they were. And I think um, I tend to be extremely reserved and quiet. A a lot of that is my mom's upbringing. Um, You know, you don't interrupt people when they're talking and uh uh different things like that um so there is uh, some aspects to me i think that reflect um the british side of my upbringing um uh, my dad was uh yeah he was very bold kind of scary actually at some po- sometimes because he was tall and he was big and he had a big voice and um So it it was very different. And that's one of the things um, in my books I'll often have um, bring American characters to England. And I'll um, try and portray how different they are, how the American ladies were, were much bolder than the British ladies. They weren't used to having chaperones and they were used to. You know, kind of doing what they wanted to do, and and so I, I try and uh, show in my books the differences between the two cultures. The way that um, British are much more reserved, and there's there's proper behavior. They they place a lot of emphasis on what is proper behavior, whereas the American girls are a little bit more rebellious, and so mm-hmm. it's always fun to work with with characters from two different cultures. Cultural
0: conflicts are some of my favorites to read about, no question. Now, did I read correctly that your parents were the inspiration for the Rogues in Texas series? The, a rogue in Texas never love a cowboy and never marry a cowboy. Do I have that right? Yes.
1: Uh, and, and Well, part of that is uh, just because I was very much aware of how difficult it was for my mom when she moved over here. And so I brought um, three... Second Sons of English Lords to Texas. And that's where I first started um, trying to show the differences and the challenges of when a fish-out-of-water kind of thing. Because Mm -hmm. when they got here, the women were very different than the women that they were accustomed to. Um, And the life was very different. So... um, so, so yes, they, they, my parents were kind of the inspiration for that series just because I knew their stories of how different it was uh, when my mo- mom moved here.
0: Now, I do know you have some very intricate plot lines. Um, and well, a fan of your work um, who was writing, writing to me while I was researching said, You know, I start a Lorraine Heath book and I think, I can't read about a woman falling in love with her dead husband's twin brother who's masquerading as the dead husband because he got killed by a wild animal. That's just impossible. And then, of course, it is the greatest book ever. (laughs) (laughs) What inspires you to go all in on some very familiar and tricky romance tropes and conflicts?
1: Um, I enjoy the challenge of it. I like taking something that... At first blush, you would think can't be done. And I like trying to do it in a way that does make it an enjoyable read for the reader and makes it understandable for the character, understandable, the motivations understandable to the characters. I have a degree in psychology Mm -hmm. and it's helped me with my character development and I like the challenge of taking something and working with the characters in such a way that their motivations can make whatever it is that they're doing understandable. So it's just it's a, a challenge that I enjoy undertaking and trying to make them it believable and understandable. And to make char- uh, readers emphasize empathize with the characters.
0: So motivation is a is a major part of your writing process.
1: Yes, I feel like if you can if you can write the characters in a way <laughs> that readers can understand what it is that is motivating them, and if that motivation is strong enough mm-hmm. that. Um, that you can do just about anything <laughs> in a romance novel. I'm sure there's some things that, that you really can't explain away, but uh, I think the key is, um, is making sure that you give the readers enough insight into the characters that they can relate to them.
0: I know this is a very uh, involved question, d- diving deep into the idea of craft and character development. But what are some ways that you've used to demonstrate character motivation so that it works? I mean, it's not its not enough to just say, well, I'm having a character say, well, I'm doing this because of this. I'm doing this because of that. How do you develop motivation? What are some of the tools that you
1: use? What I try to do is to show the characters doing something that reflects what they truly are to the reader. So an example that I can think of is, um, um, in one of my earlier works, Parting Gifts, um, the hero comes across as very hard, very uh, determined. He's, uh, uh, and the the heroine is, is, um, he and the heroine are always butting heads. And uh, he could be coming across as unlikable. But what I will do is I will have scenes. I had scenes with him interacting with his uh, nieces and nephews. And they're very heartwarming scenes so that the reader can see that he does have the ability to love. He can love. And even though he's not showing that aspect of himself to the heroine, I I felt like it was important that the reader see that there is this aspect of him. And so when I'm writing characters, uh, particularly those that um, aren't really um, reflecting their true self to the the, uh, hero or heroine, I try and have scenes that show them doing something that can make them likable to the reader. I have to have a... Whether I do it on paper or I just do it for myself, when I get to the point where a character um, acknowledges like if the heroine acknowledges that she has fallen in love with the hero, or the hero acknowledges that he's fallen in love with the heroine, I have to have a list in my head, or sometimes I'll have them in the book lay out the reasons they fell in love with this person, but there, I have to see moments in the book that I can say, here are the things that they did that made them fall in love with them. It's not enough just for the heroine to be able to say, I-, I love you. I have to see in the book all the different things he did that made her come to love him or all the different things that she did. And if I don't think I have enough scenes where it's believable that she would love this person or he would love her, then I go in and I put more scenes or I expand the scenes that are there because I want the reader to know these are the things that made this person fall in love. So it's
0: not just what the character says or represents, but also what they unintentionally reveal about themselves during the course of the story. Exactly
1: yes, I want reader to see them actually doing things that demonstrate what their character truly is. Like, as an Earl Desires, I had an extremely cold heroine. She was very cold. Uh, And I had a scene where um, she uh, purchased a bunch of toys and took them to an orphanage. And I showed how much Joy had brought her doing that. Mm -hmm. So uh, while the reader was seeing that she was very cold to the hero, the reader also saw that there was a warm side to her. And so then the question becomes, if there is this side to her, why is she not showing it? And so then you have to get into her backstory of what happened in her life that made her feel like she has to protect her heart. So that the reader then begins to understand, okay, she's being cold because she's trying to protect herself. Then the reader starts to wonder, what is she protecting herself from? And so you can just kind of weave in little things to intrigue the reader to discover why are these people really acting the way that they are.
0: Which also then, if I'm understanding correctly, presents an opportunity in a very specific location Uh, in their personality and in their lives to change. It gives you this sort of pivot point of when, of how that character is going to evolve during the course of the story. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Because
1: we always want our characters to grow. Yes. um, But by showing things rather than just telling the reader, but by showing things and showing their evolved, evolving character, showing them starting to become more, um, more of what their true self is and revealing what their true self is. I also, I, I feel like um, laughter is an important part of our lives. Oh, yes, please. Um, and so usually there is, a, I will always have a scene where either the hero makes the heroine laugh, although usually it's my hero who's not the one doing the laughing, and so I will have a moment where the the heroine makes the hero laugh, and that's usually the moment that he really begins to look at her differently because she sparked something in him that had been dormant for a while. And so I, I just feel like it's it's humor to me is an important part of uh, of life and of storytelling of storytelling. Of story and I tend to write stories with a lot of emotion and sometimes they get kind of dark and I, I like to have a lighter moment, a moment where they do laugh together. So I think that's a bonding experience.
0: I very much agree. I think two characters who can laugh together have are demonstrating a level of inf- affinity or connection that isn't really possible to explain in words if something makes you and another person laugh, you already know that you have something very essential about yourselves in common. It's a, it's an almost form. It's a, it's a form of intimacy really to find the same things funny and amusing. I agree. Now you, as we've talked about, you have written contemporary historical paranormal YA you've written under several different names. You've written Westerns, you've written books set in various places, you've written dystopias. Do you have a favorite of your different books? Is there a favorite of each series that you've written? Do you have some that you just look back and go, I just, oh,
1: I just love that book? It's going to sound corny. <laughs> I mean, usually the book that I'm writing at the time is my favorite. Uh, Not corny at all. Uh, and, and part of that is because whatever book I'm writing at the time, I'm writing something that I need at that time. Um, I found that when I look back over my books, um, I might not realize it at the time that I'm writing it, but when I look back, I can generally figure out what was going on in my life at the time I wrote that book, and I can see it reflected. In hindsight, I can see it reflected in the book whatever I was dealing with at the time. For example, uh, when I wrote Parting Gifts, um, I had a character who was uh, dying. And while I didn't realize it when I was writing it at the time, when I look in retrospect, there was a person in my life who was dealing with uh, what one of the characters was dealing with. And I, it, for me, writing is kind of a catharsis. Mm-hmm. So I tend to um, pour myself into the story and uh, it's often something that I'm dealing with. But I will say that my first love is historical romance. Um, I enjoy writing contemporaries and young adult. They're kind of, for me, they're kind of like um, just refreshing the palette. But my first love is historical romance. And if, I could only pick one thing to write. I would write historical romance. What are some of the things that you love about writing historical romance? I've always loved history for one thing. And I, I just, it, there's such a tapestry of settings and different aspects to what's happened in the past. I find it um, fun and challenging just to, to go back into that world. And it's kind of an escape for me, I guess, from modern, modern times. Do you
0: also find that there are more boundaries between your characters in historical settings, that the simple logistics of getting two people together requires a lot
1: more intricacy? Um, I think so. The characters are naturally going to want to stay apart because of society and because of beliefs at the time. And so you, you kind of had your have your built-in sexual tension because you are striving to make them break the boundaries that they've been grown up with. And so, um, so yeah, that, that could be another aspect of it.
0: There's certainly boundaries and uh, tension in, in historical settings um, sort of built in when you're, when you're writing, whether you're writing historical or, or YA, do you laugh and or cry when you're writing the scenes that are deeply emotional? I do. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a sign that the emotion is genuine, and I'm always fascinated um, to hear writers talk about how the things that they're writing – also affect them emotionally, sometimes even on the third or fourth, or, you know, if you're in copy edits, it's the 10th reread, it still gets to you. That's, that's, I think that's really powerful. Is it a pretty consistent thing that you do laugh or cry at your writing?
1: Um, it is, um, I have to keep a box of Kleenex on my, on my desk where I work. <laughs> and um, I actually, I always take a bit of satisfaction, particularly when I get to a part that uh, makes me cry. Because I'm hoping that whatever about it that's making me cry, that I've managed to put that on the page so that it will touch readers as well. Uh, sometimes I, I worry that you know maybe it's just because these characters are special to me that when I get to a particular point, I cry. But uh, I do hope that I have managed to make... The reader feel whatever it is that I'm feeling at the time
0: I noticed in a Q and a in Cosmopolitan magazine a couple of years ago it was all about how covers get made i I love how when people who are in journalism outside the genre take a look at the take a look at the genre, they always get to the covers and sometimes they just stop right there and I get it they're really interesting, <laughs> there's a lot of coverage of covers um, You mentioned in this article that the Earl takes all is one of your favorite covers with a dark purple and black dress, almost morning. Um, and it's from the back and the woman is, the model is looking out a window, holding a rose. Is that still one of your favorites? It is a stunning cover.
1: It is a stunning cover. Um, you know, uh, it, it is one of my favorites, um, but I, I have been so fortunate with all of my covers. Um, uh, The cover for um, When a Duke Loves a Woman, which comes out next, is this beautiful, beautiful purple. Um, And so it would be difficult for me now to to pick a favorite cover because (laughs) I (laughs) rotate through. I just, I've been very fortunate. I have seen really beautiful covers.
0: It's very interesting to look at all of the different books you've published and see just how in your career alone, how much the art and the style has changed. Um, The Rogues in Texas series, they all have like a single flower trailing a ribbon or a garland behind them. And then as you move forward, you get into the somewhat undressed heroine, and then there's some... uh, open shirts on gentlemen. And now there's these beautiful jewel tone dresses on, on all of these covers. Do you ever look at the change in the way that romance is packaged and think, Oh, Oh, this is, this is interesting. I like this. Do you notice that evolution as well?
1: Uh, I have noticed that evolution. Um, And, you know, the the thing is, anytime I get a cover, I, I always think, you know, Oh, this is the best cover. And then I'll get the next one. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> this, one is, this is the best cover. And so it's just, it's been interesting to watch uh, the evolution and to see the way that the, the covers have changed. And, and it's, it, it's interesting too. I, I don't know if it's, um, I don't know how readers feel about them. If, if some of the changes are motivated by reader responses to covers or if the art department is, you know, Try, just trying something new but it just always seems like whatever the cover is that's that's the perfect cover at that time
0: I love the idea of you opening a new cover email and going oh nope this one is the best I was wrong this is it. this is perfect <laughs> you've had an amazing collection of um different characters and different parts of nobility. Is there a particular uh, level of nobility that you like writing about, or are you just sort of interested in all of the uh, class tensions within historical settings?
1: Um, I'm kind of interested in all of the class settings. And for some reason, it's not necessarily that I choose a particular title For the character, it's just that the character comes to me and it just seems appropriate whatever Mm -hmm. title he comes to me with. Um, Like, he may come to me and I'll know, okay, he's an Earl or he's a Mm -hmm. Duke. So, and I'm not really sure what the difference. I mean, why they come to me in particularly different um, ranks. So I don't necessarily have a favorite.
0: (laughs) It would be hard to pick a favorite. Like it's hard to pick a favorite of your books. (laughs) Now, I always ask this question. um, Do you have any books that you are reading or have read that you would like to recommend to people?
1: Oh, I do. I just read an advanced copy of Julianne Long's um, First Time at Twilight Falls. Ooh, did you like it? Oh, I loved it. I will never look at a, an elementary school principal the same again. <laughs> yes, she, uh, I loved her hero in that book. I uh, love the heroine, too. Um, I'm really enjoying this series, her, her contemporary series. Um, I've also uh, recently read uh, Loretta Chase's uh, Duke in Shining Armor which uh, I just adored, but I adore everything Loretta Chase does. She's an auto buy for me. Um, And so those are two books that I recommend.
0: You have a lot of uh, research books that you keep around? If a
1: person is writing, I recommend uh, Life in Victorian England. And one of the things that I like about it is that it um, takes the impoverished, Heart of England, the middle class, and then the nobility. And each chapter, like it'll talk about clothing, and it'll talk about how the impoverished dressed, how the middle class dressed, and how the nobility dressed. And when it comes, there's a chapter on weddings, and it talks about how their weddings differed. And so it's a, a really good book if you're wanting to get the full social scope of uh, the different aspects of Britain at the time. Another book that I really like is uh, How to Marry an English Lord. Oh! Which um, goes through the period of time when uh, the American heiresses began going to Britain to marry English lords. And so it explains why they went to Britain and and why the lords were so willing to marry American heiresses it's a real fascinating read um, and it too gives you insight into um, it gives you insight into the differences between Americans and British and so if you're looking for those differences it's a it's a really good book but it also is good at pointing out um, the various aspects of British life that you um, if we 're not really familiar with it, it highlights how different life is from Americans and so it makes it um, so it 's a good research book if you're trying to uh, put information in a historical about British life because it points out things that are different in the way they are over here. I also read um, like a biography like the Glitter and the gold is um, the Duchess of Marlborough was an American heiress Mm -hmm. and that's her biography. And she points out a lot of the differences between her, the life she had in America and then the life she had in Britain. And she was not at all happy, uh, living in Britain. And because as you pointed out earlier, it was, it was very rigid and controlling and unemotional. And so, um, so so it's a good book if you're looking, if you're writing uh, in the Victorian era, it's a good book to read.
0: And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. I want to thank Lorraine Heath for chatting with me, and I hope that you found her writing advice as inspiring as I did. If you have ideas or suggestions or questions or you want to ask me something, like some recommendations, please feel free to email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. You can record a voice memo. You can email it to me. You can just write all the things you want to say, but I would love to hear from you because you are some fabulous people. This episode was brought to you by Never Dare a Wicked Earl by Renee Ann Miller. RWA Golden Heart finalist and debut author Renee Ann Miller spins a ravishing tale of Regency London filled with infamous lords and unrepentant rogues whose bad behavior makes for good gossip. But these sexy scoundrels have stories and secrets that no one knows, and it takes a special touch to reveal the true hearts behind their devilish disguises. Never Dare a Wicked Earl pits a reckless earl convalescing from a gunshot wound from a jealous ex-mistress against his determined plucky nurse with one scandalous wager. Never Dare a Wicked Earl by Renee Ann Miller Is available everywhere books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. And thanks to Kensington for sponsoring this month's episodes. Each episode gets a transcript, which is handcrafted by Garlic Knitter. Thank you, Garlic Knitter. This week's transcript is being brought to you by Elizabeth Bright's Lady Gone Wicked. Nicholas Eastwood is about to get everything he has ever wanted. As reward for his service to the crown, he has been offered the title of Marquess, All he has to do is stay scandal-free until the papers are signed. There is just one problem. His ex-lover, presumed dead, is remarkably alive. Adelaide Bersnell is determined to right her wrongs. She will be a dutiful daughter and a loving sister. And most importantly, she will marry before her scandal catches up to her. Nicholas was once her ruin. And now he's determined to be her salvation. If he can find her a suitable husband, their shared past can stay buried but old temptations prove impossible to resist and scandal can never stay secret for long. Lady Gone Wicked is available at all online book retailers and you can learn more at elizabethbrightauthor.com. If you are listening, thank you for that. I am very honored to hear from different people who love the podcast and listen each week. And I know you guys are working out or dyeing wool or walking the dog or cleaning the house, or as I recently discovered, carving wax for jewelry design. How rad is that? I really appreciate that you hang out with us. If you would like to help the show, there are very, very easy ways to do that. One, you can leave a review however or wherever you listen to podcasts, whichever app or program you use. You can tell a friend, you su- can subscribe. And if you'd like, you can have a look at our podcast, Patreon, which helps keep the show going, helps me commission transcripts for episodes going back to 2008 and 2011. Can you believe the show's been going that long? I am astonished. It's almost 10 years old. Although there was kind of a break in the middle there because we stopped and then picked up again at 2011. But still, that's a really long time. If you would like to have a look at our Patreon, patreon.com slash pledges make a deeply, deeply appreciated difference. And I want to thank some of the Patreon folks personally. So to Brandy and Mary, LH, Julia, Laura, and C. Thank you for being part of the podcast Patreon community. The music you're listening to is provided by Sassy Outwater. I will have information at the end of the show who this is as to who this is. But no, I'm already done. It is the end of the show. God, I don't even know what time it is right now. This is really embarrassing. Okay. Um, Autopilot. It's a powerful thing. Shall we try that again? This is the Pete Bog Fairies. This is their album Live at 25, and this is the Humors of Ardna Martian. And it's pretty rad. If you like it, you can find the album at Amazon and iTunes, and you can find out more at PeteBogFairies.com. Coming up on the site this week is some cool stuff. First, on Sunday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, we will have our movie discussion of broadcast news, which if you haven't watched this movie, it is both an amazing 80s time capsule and Also, really quite remarkably relevant to today as well. We will have a discussion at 8 p.m. Eastern on the website at smartbitchestrashybooks.com. And this week, we have Cover Snark, a Bachelor Recap, a new Soggy Bottoms, which is where Amanda attempts to recreate all the technical bakes from the Great British Bake Off. And we have a very special cover reveal for Susanna Kearsley's next book, which comes out this summer. I hope that you will take a peek and hang out with us at Smart Bitches, too. And of course... Time for the end joke. Are you ready? What do you call the greatest dad joke of all time? Give up. Do I know the answer? What do you call the greatest dad joke of all time? A grandfather joke. Woohoo! <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, they never failed to crack me up. Thank you to Weird Bacon on Reddit for posting that because it completely made my day. And on behalf of Lorraine Heath and myself and Orville, who has sprawled across my desk while I do the show... Thank you for being part of the podcast. Thank you for hanging out with us. We wish you the very best of reading. Have a great weekend and we'll see you next week.